This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Great to have you here. It's nice to be with you, Stu. Thank you for inviting me back. Absolutely. So um, we we did talk about uh, Leadership BS last time. You've now written powerful new book, which I just read on the ride back from Europe last week, Dying for a Paycheck. It's so important. It's about the economic and psychosocial stresses of today's workplaces that are literally, not just figuratively, killing people. So if you could start us off with what's the through line? How did you get from leadership BS to uh, the destructive strains of our workplaces um, in, 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 that, you, that you highlight and then suggest some remedies for in dying for a paycheck? Well, I, you know, I try to alternate between writing books about individuals and their power dynamics and what they should be doing and uh-huh. then thinking at organizations, looking at organizations and their systemic effects. But this book really began years ago when I was visiting at ESA in Barcelona and a colleague, Nuria Chinchilla, asked me to participate in a seminar about work and family. She runs the Center for Work and Family there. And I said, yes. I don't know much about work and family. But I have this kind of nascent interest in the workplace and human health. Could I write a chapter on that? And she said, yes, the conference never occurred. But that kind of, I began getting into the epidemiological literature on the connection between workplace and all the things the workplace affects, including individual behaviors, such as mm-hmm. smoking, eating, and drinking, and all kinds of, and taking Ill, uh, drugs that are harmful. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so then I, you know, over the years, over the last five or six years, have gradually collected material and more recently done a number of interviews with people uh, to try to see the the effects of the workplace on on people, and I sometimes summarize everything in this book with the following simple sentence, the workplace is killing people and no one cares. And I actually believe the second is as big a problem as the first. Well, let's start with that then. What do you mean no one cares? No one cares. Um, I don't find very many organizations, even though doing this is quite easy to do, that measures the health and well-being of their of their workforce. Um, they do an engagement survey occasionally, but they don't really measure physical health. And that's because in many instances, the organizations are able to externalize their costs. So if I hire you, Stu Friedman, and I burn you up or wear you out or make you incapable of uh, of doing the work that I think you need to do, mm-hmm. I get rid of you, and you're somebody else's problem or maybe society's problem. So the organizations don't care. And ironically, it's more ironic in countries that provide government-paid-for medical care than it is in the U.S., but the government doesn't seem to care either. NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health mm-hmm. actually does have a healthy workplace program, and they would like to do something about this. NIOSH has been extremely successful in driving down workplace injuries and deaths from physical and and more visible environmental causes, mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. as accidents and toxic chemicals. They have done a, just a fabulous job and continue to do a fabulous job. They understand extremely well the um, the problems of workplace stress and 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 what and what that is doing however uh, 
how, however, that we are in a deregulatory movement. That the eyes mm-hmm. they have no power, they have no budget, mm-hmm. they have no ability to intervene in this very important dimension of the workplace. And so, therefore, you know, therefore the government doesn't seem to care, and uh, and for the most part, um, uh, employers don't care. And when governments do things. For instance, like raise the minimum wage because there's a little strong connection between income and health. Right. Or when governments seek to do things like require people to provide hourly workers their schedules in advance mm-hmm. so that they, you know, can predict, you know, plan and predict their lives mm-hmm. to cover elder care and child care responsibilities. The business community fights each of these things as hard as they can. So, but so as irony, to avoid me, external let me, control. Let me, yeah, let me say one more thing and then yeah. we'll move on. The irony is, is that most of the stuff that's bad for employees, long work hours, work-family conflict, economic insecurity, including layoffs and so forth, most of these things don't benefit employers either. So we have created truly a lose-lose situation. Hmm. That seems irrational, of course. And uh, not sustainable. Uh, you know, I, I have long thought of the work that we do in organizational psychology and trying to improve the quality of working experiences as one of uh, uh, you know, seeking greater human freedom, uh, liberation, choice, uh, and control. You are calling for a movement to seriously address human sustainability and I'd like you to talk about why it's better to be a tree at Stanford than a campus worker. <laughs> yes, well, human sustainability, I think, should be taken, you know, as seriously as environmental sustainability. My friend Nuria Chinchia from ESA once said to me, why do we care more about polar bears than human beings? Um, I think, you know, Stanford, even though it's a relatively benign employer, is like most other employers. In 2008, we had a layoff. Uh, laid off close to, I think, somewhere between four and 500 people. And you could see the people, you know, walking mm-hmm. with their possessions to their cars, in some instances, tears streaming down their, their cheeks. Uh, this is not just cruel, but there is really an extensive literature, scientific literature, published in peer-reviewed journals, that shows that layoffs kill people. You know, it increases the risk of suicide, and through other mechanisms, it is, of course, very stressful. So layoffs are very toxic. Not um, to mention the, the ripple effects on the survivors who experience course, guilt and, and all and kinds of other disruptions. have to do the layoffs. That's exactly correct. Mm-hmm. So it's not just targeted at the people who are losing their employment, but all the people surrounding them in their social uh, environment. That's correct. And, of course, the people's families. Mm-hmm. So, if you, so if you're laid off... You know, you are probably, if, if, and if you have a family, your children, the spouse, whatever, uh, the, those people are going to be affected by the, by the layoff as well. So why is so, it better to be a tree at Stanford than a campus worker? Because for some reason, Stanford seems to want to preserve its trees. <laughs> it spends a lot of money, you know, planting trees and preserving trees and taking care of its trees. And um, often, I don't think, does quite as much uh, to, to take care of its employees. And I think. So you're saying you're example, against trees, Jeffrey Pfeffer? Is that what you're saying? No, I love trees, but I also <laughs> love people. <laughs> We don't yeah. care as much about the former as we do about the latter. And, you know, I think one reason why we, we worry about trees and polar bears as we see them as not very agentic and not mm. very able to care for themselves 
you know, given the hmm. environmental shocks that they may face. We see people as being resilient, as in charge of their own lives, and therefore as not needing the same level of care and stewardship that, um, that, that maybe trees or, or polar bears require. But I don't agree with that. I think people really do, you know, when, 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 when someone goes to work in the morning, they are placing their well-being, both psychological and physical, to some extent in the control of their employer. And that employer, therefore, I think has some responsibility to, stu- to steward and be responsible for that person. And, and most of the evidence that I'm aware of suggests that when you do that, you actually get greater value from your human asset, as it were. Of course. So it's the, but, you know, the, the potential you know, for win-win is there. Yeah, of course, the win-win is exactly there, as is the lose-lose. But, of course, as you know, for the last, I don't know how many decades, companies have been shedding responsibilities to their workers, Mm -hmm. cutting retirement benefits, cutting uh, or passing or transferring costs for health insurance to their employers, and in some cases actually cutting out health insurance completely, uh, cutting their employees, making, you know, at one point you joined an organization, you had a career, then you have a job, now you have a gig. So there's very much, you know, on-demand having people work for you for like a nanosecond or a few minutes while they do the delivery or while they do one thing or the other. So so the the, the trend seems to be going in the wrong direction, which is probably one reason why, according to the latest statistics, um, life expectancy, at least in the United States, has stopped going up. Really? Yes. So you think we've we've reached the pinnacle of our of our system's uh, growth as a as a source of uh, uh, well human progression? Well, we have a, we have certainly reached the limit. We have not reached the limit of what we can do for people, uh, but we've reached the limit of what we can do for people unless we change, unless man- leaders of, of, of companies change what they do with respect to their employment practices, that's for sure. So, you know, 100 years ago, the reformers, the reformers movement in, in our society was a, was a, was a way to, uh, to mitigate against the revolutionary forces that were, that were germinating in other parts of the world, like in Russia, for example. And, you know, what, what emerged here, and really this is part of the birth of our field of organizational psychology, is, uh, is a response to the conditions of employment to make them, well, more livable, more sustainable, uh, so as to try to, uh, try to inhibit the forces of social revolution, which were growing uh, because of the terrible, terrible conditions, economic and otherwise, for workers. So uh, do you see uh, uh, in, 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 these, in the data that, that you've brilliantly gathered in Dying for a Paycheck, the conditions being sown for a kind of revolutionary force in our society to try to make the kinds of changes that you are hoping we'll see in a sustainability movement? Um, I really, to to say the truth, I really don't know. On the one hand, unions obviously are weaker than they have been. And we have also tended to blame most of our problems on, you know, on external factors Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, foreign competition, imports, 
or immigrants. And by the way, the data are pretty clear if you read the industrial relations literature that wage stagnation and problems in job growth have little to do with either technology or um, immigration. But we, so, we, so we blame these external forces as opposed to saying to ourselves on a daily basis, what can we do to make the workplace better? Um, and, uh, and so this really change, requires a change in how leaders think about what their, what their job is, which is not just to maximize the value that they provide to shareholders, but they should also, of course, be concerned about the well-being of people. I mean, after all, we don't permit slavery and child labor, even if those might be profitable or good for the bottom line. They have been, historically. What are the key statistics that one needs to know about the scope of the problem? So two colleagues in operations research and I did a study which is published in the peer-reviewed journal Management Science in which we estimated that 120,000 excess deaths a year in the United States came from um, from workplace conditions uh, in the aggregate. That 120,000 excess deaths per year would make the workplace the fifth leading cause of death mm. ahead of things such as Alzheimer's and kidney disease. We also, in order to do that analysis, did meta-analyses summarizing the research, scientific research on the effects of 10 workplace conditions on various health outcomes, including self-reported physical and mental health, having a physician diagnosed illness, mm-hmm. and also mortality. And having done these meta-analyses, one of my colleagues, Stefano Zinio, said, we need to, nobody knows what, it's, uh, what the odds ratio is, we need to compare these to something. And he thought for a while and said, what about secondhand smoke? And it turns out many of these workplace conditions are as toxic as secondhand smoke, a mm. known and regulated carcinogen. So, um, mm-hmm. so those are the two. Those are the, so that's our estimate, and our estimate of excess healthcare costs in the United States is about 180 to 190 billion dollars from the same kinds of studies and data. And as you as you as you said when you introduced the show, um, and I think this is right. There are some other estimates that suggest that the the workplace stress is costing employers 300. A uh, billion dollars a year. One survey shows that seven percent of people said they had been actually hospitalized because of workplace stress. Uh, there's a study in China that indicates that one million people a year are dying from overwork. Um, you know, the, the the numbers go on and on and a on. Million. Many, and as much data as I present in the book, and there's a ton, uh, I even didn't present everything. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just an enormous epidemiological literature which talks to how harmful many workplaces, not all, but many are for their employees. And, and what are the main culprits, the top three? I would say that so the number one culprit, uh, which only exists in the United States, is the absence of access to health care because you don't get health insurance. Mm-hmm. That's, that's number one. Number two, um, the absence of control over your job. Uh, in, in a word that you would understand very well, given your background and, and research, uh, job autonomy is important. And to have a lot of job demands on you without the ability to control of when and how you do them mm-hmm. is extremely stressful. And third is something that you've, we've already alluded to, which is economic insecurity. The idea that you, you know, that, that you won't have a job, the idea that you might be laid off at any moment. So those three things really, I think, are, are very, are very harmful to people. Work family conflict is also harmful to people. And frankly, so is long work hours. And long work hours is another wonderful example of lose-lose. 
because there is a deterioration in performance at a certain level of uh, a certain volume of hours. After a while, you just start to decay and you just can't perform as well. Absolutely. There's this wonderful chart in The Economist magazine, which, you know, shows work hours on the um, horizontal axis and productivity on the vertical axis, and it fits a nice line going down. Uh, the more hours you work, the less the per-hour productivity there is. And by the way, that is an analysis that has been done at the industry level of analysis and, uh, and, and, and uh, has been uh, looked at over time. And so there, there is, it's pretty clear that there is a negative relationship between hours worked and per-hour productivity for exactly, exactly the reason you just suggested. You know, when you work, after you've worked a certain number of hours, you're no longer going to work at the same, at the same pace and with the same level of skill because things will degrade. Before we get to what people can and should be doing, last thing, you also uh, highlight the importance of social support. Say more, uh, say what you will about why that's so important or its lack in, in creating uh, conditions for health at work. So when, when, when people are stressed, you know, in, in, any, in any aspect of their life, their personal life or whatever, one of the things that helps people cope, and again, there's an enormous research literature on this, is having close friends, people that they can rely on, share their problems with, and get help with, uh, with, with, with their, um, you know, with, with the problems and stresses that they're facing. So having, so having social support, having a collegial environment, having people that you can turn to for advice and, and a social and emotional support, people mm-hmm. to give you encouraging words, people to, you know, give you advice and help, uh, for any kind of problem is, of course, important. It helps mitigate the effects of stress, and it helps directly um, reduce your level, own level of stress. And that's just as true in the workplace as it is uh, pretty much anywhere else. So why do people stay in toxic workplaces? You devote some time to that, and it's an important question because if, if there is so much toxicity, why not just get the heck out? Well, number one, you know, in some cases, people really don't have options mm-hmm. because of where companies have chosen to locate, for instance, in depressed areas. Number two, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't actually think of this. I was interviewing this woman, uh, and she said to me, you know, she said, I am, you know, I, I was so exhausted and psychologically stressed out that I could not possibly look for another job because looking for another job, people will tell you this. I'm sure you've heard this phrase. It's another look, job. Look, that's exactly right. Looking for a job is a job. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if I am so exhausted, both psychologically and phys- physically, I may not have the um, the ability to or the the, the, the resources to look for time. a job. And, yeah. and then you know, comp- no one wants to admit that they made a mistake in mm-hmm. choosing where they are. And finally, companies like Amazon and GE do a great job of saying to you, you know, so you you come to me and say, you know, Jeffrey, I want to quit. I say, why? And you say, well, you know, I can't really take it. And I say, you know, let's, I have a friend who I interviewed for this book who did this with GE. You know, he'd go to GE. He's, uh, I have a picture of him, which I didn't put in the book, about 60, 70 pounds heavier than he is today. Mm. He said, if you, if you use the picture, say it's your body on GE. But in any event, <sighs> he, you know, so he, he, he would go into his boss. He'd say, I'm going to quit. And he'd say, the boss would look at him and say, what's the matter with you? Aren't you good enough to be a GE leader? Uh, if you were if you were a real leader, you could you could cope with this. You'd mm-hmm. figure it out. And so, the appeal to our ego 
Amazon, you know, tells people, you know, you know, we're, we're changing the world. And, you know, some people can, can hack it, and that's culture, and some people can't. So the appeal to the ego, and, and many people that I interviewed were, were very successful, very smart, white-collar people. Uh, you had gone to very good schools, gotten very good degrees, Harvard MBAs, degrees in computer science from the University of Washington. And they did not want to admit, particularly to themselves or to their families, that they couldn't hack these tough work environments. Mm. So they said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just tough it out. So how do you advise people, Jeff, about how to cope with an unacceptable circumstance, especially where you do have options, or at least uh, you, know, you have the opportunity to learn about what those options might be. Well, I tell people that, you know, for, for the last 40 years, human resources departments have said in their manuals and in their employee orientations that people are responsible for their own well-being. Mm-hmm. You ought to take those human resources departments seriously. And as you think about jobs, and t- taking a job, you ought to ask yourself, you know, is this job going to be a place where I can thrive physically and psychologically? Because at the end of the day, money, even if you make a good salary, money will not bring back lost health. You know, in the Silicon Valley, a medical organization called the Palo Alto Medical Foundation runs a mobile van to go to these very fancy high-tech companies because employees don't think they can take even time off for a nano minute uh, to go get a physical. Mm. And as, they, as the guy said in this New York Times article, he says, I see 30-year-old engineers with 50-year-old bodies. And, you know, once you've done that level of damage to yourself, it's, it's really, really tough uh, to, re- to rebuild. And so people ought to be concerned about the psychological and physical conditions of work before, as they choose where they're going to go to work. But as you point out so uh, poignantly, many people think, well, I can cut it. I'll figure out a way, and then I'll deal with it later. Well, <laughs> people should not. <laughs> people should not. <laughs> and not believe that. Uh, Because one of the ways in which people cut it, and this is another sad part of the book that I discovered, one of the ways in which people cut it, so to speak, is by self-medicating. So the, the use of ADHD drugs in order to help people concentrate has gone up. Um, the use of uh, antidepressants has gone up. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things I think people ought to do if they can get it is look at how many, what percentage of people in an organization's workforce are on antidepressants. Hmm. <laughs> the prescription drug data can maybe help you figure out what's a good place to work or not. Wow. And people, and people self-medicate with cocaine mm-hmm. and alcohol and other stimulants. But you could imagine a glass door kind of uh, data uh, gathering and display that would show the medica- medication use of people by, by organization. It would tell you a lot. Wow. That's a great idea. Uh, let me ask you two other quick questions. They're big questions, so they won't be – well, they'll, they'll have to be abbreviated. What – is the most important thing that listeners could be thinking about doing or to do to help to advance a movement towards greater human sustainability in our workplaces? So that's interesting because I'm not actually 100%. I mean, you know, I'm not really a social entrepreneur, so I haven't founded an organization to right. do anything about this. But one thing I think listeners could do is, is pay attention to these issues. And, and, and as they look at organizations, 
touting their environmental bona fides, you know, how much we recycle, how much carbon we don't use, what we do in terms of, um, you know, our impact on the physical planet, they ought to ask those organizations and organizations ought to report. It's the same way they do for their environmental uh, impact, their human impact. So that's certainly one thing, just as, you know, when you see companies touting this stuff, ask them questions about, you know, what's, what's mm-hmm. happening to your people. Mm-hmm. You also said earlier that, that leaders ought to take responsibility for creating environments where well-being is the standard. Absolutely. So, so to, to, the, to the managers listening, to the people who have some discretion over the, over the conditions of employment, what would you say? I would say several things. First of all, you know, work, worry about work hours. And don't think that just because employees are putting in more hours, they're necessarily doing more. And don't use work hours as some kind of litmus test to see if people are committed to your organization or to you. I mean, sometimes, you know, when, when, when people uh, encourage people to take vacations and to refresh themselves. It's interesting, one of the companies I interviewed for the book is Patagonia. Patagonia, mm-hmm. one of Patagonia's measures is what percentage of their female employees who have children return to work at Patagonia. And the number there is 99%, which is way higher than the national average. Yes, and yeah, they have for a long time been letting their people surf and and uh, yes. and really investing in in uh, the whole person. So, uh, and you also highlight uh, Zillow, Landmark Health, uh, and some other organizations. Your book is filled with great examples. Uh, last last question. It's a question I've been asking everybody on the show this year. Um, what? How do you bring compassion to your work? I'm to try- my work personally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I bring compassion? How is, my- how is compassion a part of what you do? Well, I try, in, in certainly in at least some, not all, but in some of my research, to think about what its implications are for, for, for human well-being. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why I did all the empirical work with these two operations research colleagues, Joel Goh and Stefano Zenios, and it's one reason why I wrote this book and spent the time doing the interviews and gathering the data, because to me, I think the most compassionate thing we can do in our, in our daily lives is to try and provide information uh, that will increase people's physical and mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I have focused on and continue to focus on. Well, I am among the many people who is very grateful to you for doing that. Jeff, how can people find out more about the great work that you're doing with this book? Well, they can go to my homepage, personal homepage, mm-hmm. which is www.jeffreypfeffer.com, or the, you can go to Amazon or any of the book places and, you know, buy Dying for a Paycheck, uh, which I hope people will read and not only read, uh, but after they read it and get aggravated or get upset or get, you know, whatever, uh, that they will then think about what they can do to change this, this world of work. Because we, this is not an inevitable thing this is not how things need to be and and it really we really have created a lose-lose situation in which we're in which companies are harming both the workforce and themselves and there are things that we can do no matter what the the role is that we play in our organizations well jeff uh we are out of time unfortunately so let me just thank you very much uh for for being my guest on the show and uh for doing this 
very important work with Dying for a Paycheck. I appreciate it very much. And I very much enjoy talking to you. And in the introduction to the show, it occurred to me that this book really, really does overlap in a huge way with your interests and work. Very much so. Uh, I know you've got to run. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Pfeffer and that it stimulated some new insight for you about how you think about your work environment, the structure of your work, the pace of your work, the amount of your work, the people with whom you interact at work, how these factors may be affecting your physical and mental health and well-being. One of the things we talked about, which in his book he demonstrates so well, uh, has a crucial impact on health and well-being is having a sense of control or autonomy. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation to make your workplace healthier. What small step can you take to gain or perhaps to give to others a greater sense of control of where when, and how you work. And further, how by taking this small step might you and perhaps others be both healthier and more productive? Where is the win for both the employee and the work? Try that. And if you do take such a step, which is probably more available to you than you might have thought before, if you just give it a few minutes thought, a small step you could take that would make things better for your health and make you more productive, that you could just try it for a few weeks. If you come up with such an idea and are able to take it, please let me know what you discover. I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me, Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu, or you can connect with me on Twitter at Stu Friedman. One other thing, if you have ideas about people you'd like to hear me talk to on this show, write to me about that as well. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.